0: Let's open our Bibles to the 130th Psalm, Psalm 130. title of today's message It's a simple declaration that with the Lord there is mercy. The Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament that all Scripture is profitable. That certainly includes the Psalms. But I think there are certain passages of Scripture that become precious and more meaningful to us only when we have lived enough life to understand suffering just a little bit. The 130th Psalm is one of those passages. Its tone is far from lighthearted. It is the opposite of flippant. If the Psalms of Ascent start in the lowlands and ascend up to Mount Zion, and this particular Psalm starts out in the depths of the sea and ascends all the way to heaven, to the throne of God. It is a Psalm of anguished souls crying out to God for help. As I prepared this message in my study, I thought of two things. Number one, I was reminded that uh, in the three services this morning, they were likely to be people who are in despair, people who feel like life is about to drown them. The second thing I recalled was times in my own life when I cried out to the Lord from the depths, and He heard me, and He saved me. And though the Word of God never changes, I must tell you that The Psalms, in general, are much sweeter and dearer to me now than when I was in my 20s. And I expect they will be sweeter still in another 20 years. Let's read now a very sweet Psalm, Psalm 130. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand but there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. May the Lord add his blessing the reading and hearing of his word. Now, the Israelites to whom this passage was written were not seafaring people, unlike their pagan neighbors, the Phoenicians. When Israelites thought of the sea, they often did so with a sense of foreboding and dread. Though several of Jesus' closest disciples were fishermen, they made their living on the Sea of Galilee, inland, which was really a large freshwater lake. And when the apostle John recorded how Jesus was going to make everything right, at the end of this age. He noted in Revelation 21 that not only would there be no more death or dying or pain and every tear would be wiped away, he also notes, in fact, he began Revelation 21 with this word, there will no longer be any seas. So, when the psalmist describes in one verse a person in greatest distress, it's not surprising that he would use the imagery of deep waters, he does so in his cry for help. In verse one he says, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. This is of course a metaphor, calling to God out of the depths of the sea. But, But for one Jewish man at least of the Old Testament, Jonah, it was not a metaphor, it was a reality. You remember he called out to God from the belly of the fish. God heard his cry and saved him. But this psalmist is speaking, I take it out of an almost overwhelming despair, his head is about to go under. He is surrounded by fear and pain on all sides. And there are those in this room that can relate very well to that. I've often said that what I was most unprepared for when I became a pastor 25 years ago was the amount of pain that's all around us. We do a lot of personal counseling up on the third floor here at the church during the week and have to tell you that we buy Kleenex in bulk because there are many tears shed here. Every person's story is unique, different, but I have found over the years there, there are three or four categories of despair that are most prominent. One is physical. Every cancer is present here. Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, you name it, God's people get it. In fact, some of the finest Christians that I know have been called upon to suffer greatly physically. But there's another kind of despair we don't often think of, and that's financial. This is a different sort of despair, but it's just as real. When there's more month at the end of the money, creditors are calling, cards are maxed out, and there seems to be no end in sight, and the bills just keep on coming. And then there's relational pain. And as painful as physical problems can be, and we don't diminish those, many of you have shared with me that the emotional toll of broken relationships sometimes is even more difficult. Impending divorce, rebellious children, estranged siblings, all of these can lead us to despair. But thankfully, our God cares about what we care about. He invites us to give Him those burdens and leave them there. But truthfully, we're not left to wonder specifically what the psalmist of Psalm 130's, the nature of his fear and grief. He tells us plainly, as we read this in context, it's his own sinfulness So in his despair over his own sin, he cries out to God to hear his prayer. Look at verse two, he says, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Our baby girl is not a baby anymore. Eliza Joy is four years old now. She is precocious to say the very least. But when she gets really wound up, she has a phrase that she repeats over and over. It goes like this, Daddy, can I tell you something? Can I tell you something? Daddy, can I tell you something? And sometimes she'll say it 10 times in a row. Now, often when she finally gets around to saying what she wants to say, it's not a declarative statement at all. For example, she'll say, Daddy, can I tell you something? Can I tell you something? Can I tell you something? Yes, baby, what? Can I have a popsicle? So when she says over and over, can I tell you something? It's her way of getting my undivided attention. She wants to know I'm listening. That's what the psalmist is doing here. He says, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. I have something to say. I have to tell you something. But really it's a question. It's a hypothetical horror in verse 3. He says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand He's contemplating the hypothetical case that God would judge him every time he sinned in that moment. Now, he's not saying that God is unaware or unconcerned about our sin. He's not saying God is pretending not to notice, like a doting grandfather, when the grandkids break the vase. But, But rather, he is saying, but by his grace, he offers us mercy. He is fully aware of our sin. In fact, the Bible seems to indicate that he's more aware of our sin than we are, by far. Remember the Apostle Paul said of his own conscience, he says, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not by that acquitted. See, Paul knew something about people, including himself, is that we give ourselves a long leash. We're very biased towards us. And so Paul says, I can't think of thing at the moment that's not right between me and the Lord, but... He knows my heart better than I do. Ask him. And so it leads us to this question what if, this is really a a what if verse. And let's think that through. What if everyone knew every thought I ever thought? What if everyone knew every rotten thing I've ever done or every vile word I've ever spoken? I think about that most Sundays as I'm getting ready to preach what if all these people really knew me? And here's what I'm convinced about. You would not let me preach. You probably would not let me lead in silent prayer. There is one who knows all those things about all of us. It is the Lord. And so in that vein, the psalmist contemplates a horrible thought. What if God took immediate actions every time I sin? And his response to himself would he'd be hopeless not only would he be hopeless so would everyone else no one could stand he says that is not by his own merits F- for that thought to enter the mind of a believer is a horrible thing indeed but for unbelievers it's, it's a reality revelation 20 is the chapter that precedes the one about god making all things right and drying up the seas and drying up the tears of our eyes he, he describes what's going to happen before the end of time in Revelation 20, and that is the, the great white throne of judgment. And in Revelation twenty eleven we read, "...then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged, and the things which were written in the books according to their deeds." And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged. Hear this: every one of them, according to their deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, of the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. And so you have a book, singular, the book of life. And then you have books plural, which apparently record the deeds. Of everything we thought, said, done. And so, for those of us who've been born again, our sins have been forgiven. Our names are said to be written in the Lamb's book of life. We are found to be in Christ through relationship with Him by faith. But for those who don't have saving faith, all that is left for them is to be judged by their deeds. Can you think of a more horrific thought than your eternal destiny? Your punishment would be based upon your own deeds. Well, that is the condition for those who have not bowed their knee to Christ can look forward to. They will be judged by their deeds. And here's what the Bible says about that, by the deeds of the law will no flesh be justified. If you're here and say, well that doesn't sound too bad for me, I'm a pretty good person. Let the Lord judge me by my deeds. friend. you don't know what you're saying. Romans 3.23 says, we all fall short. There's not one person who will make it to Heaven based on their deeds. I said a few weeks ago that I believe the most important phrase in the whole Bible is only two words long, it's in Ephesians 2, and it's this, but God. Let me read it to you again in context as the Apostle Paul describes what we were like before we were saved. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest that is we were in the same category as the rest of the world lost desperate hopeless and then he comes to verse four that that two-word phrase but god being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now if you analyze that text you will see that it is all about God. There is not one word about self-reformation or rehabilitation. It's all about what God has chosen to do by His grace and for His glory. And here in Psalm 130, our text this morning, we find the Old Testament version of that New Testament truth of God's grace through a single declarative sentence. He says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Here's the sentence, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. The title of the message today is taken from that text, There is Forgiveness with the Lord. What a blessed truth that is. There's no more important knowledge that any human can have than there is forgiveness with the Lord. There's mercy with the Lord. Now that statement, that there is forgiveness with the Lord, does not come, as so many of the contracts we're asked to sign are, with addendums, amendments, and asterisks. God is simply saying I am ready and willing to forgive your sin. Charles Spurgeon said of this verse that the power of pardon is permanently resident with God. My wife this week celebrated our 15th anniversary. It's important that we do because next week is our 16th anniversary. (laughs) And I've been promising her for a year a trip to San Francisco. That's what she wanted for her 15th and Life gets busy, and so this was the last week we could do it before our 16th, and so we went. (laughs) We spent about 36 hours there, but we went. And one of the things we did is uh, take a boat tour under the Golden Gate Bridge and around Alcatraz Island. I read a lot about Alcatraz Prison, but to see it up close, those prison cells are five by five by five and a half a little hole in the wall, solitary confinement most of the day. For, there are only 300 prisoners there at any one time. And some of them there were just for a few weeks, some of them there for the rest of their lives, but every one of them in absolute despair. It was drilled into them from day one. There is no hope of escape from here. In fact, they came in on trains. They didn't even let them off the train. They kept them shackled to their seat on the train cars. They took the train cars off, put them on ferries, and ferried the train cars over to the ship. No possibility of escape at any part of the way. Friends, that's what Paul describes Ephesians 2 of our condition before we were saved. We were guilty. Judge says guilty. We were sentenced to the worst kind of punishment, death, and there was no hope for us, no possibility we could escape, but God being rich in mercy. Not because of he saw any goodness in us, it doesn't say that, it says because of his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead. The point is he didn't love you because he couldn't help himself, because you're so lovable. He says he loved us when we were dead. Not to be grotesque, but there's nothing attractive or lovable about a corpse. And yet the scripture says that we were spiritual corpses. But there is forgiveness with the Lord. Again, not with addendums, amendments, or asterisks. Start with sins beginning with A and go to sins starting with Z. He forgives them all. Abortion, adultery, lying, murder, on and on. God will forgive what a blessed truth. Friends, that is the gospel. The word gospel means good news. But before the good news makes sense, you have to know the bad news. We're guilty, but it's not through reformation, not through rehabilitation, but through confession, repentance, and faith in Christ alone. He says it this way, for with the Lord there is mercy and plenteous redemption. Redemption. There's enough forgiveness with the Lord. I heard a pastor describing another person's theology this way, wrongly, I might add. He said that person doesn't believe that Jesus shed enough blood for everybody. I don't. You believe that? There is no deficiency in the Lord. He has done everything that is necessary for anyone to be saved. And that word is used very wisely. It's to redeem, to purchase, to buy, to acquire through an exchange. Remember I said God doesn't ignore our sin. That's not the gospel. That's heresy. God knows our sin better than we know it and he chooses to forgive it because he's a God of mercy. But he's also a just God, isn't he? For God just to simply excuse our sin without any payment for that sin would be unjust. And and so that's why the doctrine of substitutionary atonement is essential to what we believe and teach here. That Jesus died for sinners As Paul says, of whom I am chief. I'm not sure how much this psalmist knew about substitutionary atonement. But I know this. This psalmist and every other Old Testament believer is saved the same way every New Testament believer is. It's through the shed blood of Jesus. He looked forward in anticipation of the cross. Those Old Testament sacrifices he was accustomed to of sheep, and goats, and bulls. They had no ability to forgive sin. They were a foreshadowing and a type of the once for all sacrifice who was to come according to the book of Hebrews. In fact, the book of Hebrews says this, not only were the blood of those animals inf- un- insufficient to forgive sin, they were insufficient to cleanse the conscience of guilt. And We live in a culture today that where we are taught from the earliest times we can walk and listen that the worst possible human condition you can find yourself in is to feel guilty. And so Americans spend billions of dollars of years to have therapists help them not feel guilty. But you know why people feel guilty primarily? Because they're guilty. In fact the Bible says that godly sorrow worketh repentance. If you feel guilt about your sin, thank the Lord that your conscience is not seared. He is convicting you by your spirit. He's calling you to repentance and faith. Call out to him. Confess your sins. Probably the greatest example of that in the Old Testament is King David. And yes, God used him in great ways, but he was an incredibly terrible sinner. Committed acts so atrocious, we have difficulty speaking of them in detail in public, an adulterer, a fornicator, a murderer. But when God convicted him of his sin through the message of a prophet named Nathan, this is what he wrote, Psalm 51, "'Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving-kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. There's a guy who's in despair over his own sinfulness. He says against you and you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. He recognizes his nature is to sin. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being in the hidden part, you will make me no wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be water than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Here's a guy calling out in desperation, Lord, hear my prayer. I, I'm guilty. He's confessing. To confess sin is to simply agree with God's assessment of you. God declares us all to be sinners. And when we confess it, we agree with His assessment. When we repent, we turn away from those sins. And when we believe, we put our faith and trust that what Christ has accomplished in our place on the cross is enough to cleanse us and make our relationship new with the Father. And the result of those who've experienced that kind of radical grace is that they have a new fundamental relationship with sin and a new fundamental relationship with God. He says in Psalm 130, do this that I might fear you. That seems strange to our ears. We're accustomed to saying, Lord, forgive me so that I can love you. Well, that's part of it. The Bible says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And I was reminded this week on my trip as I traveled around that beautiful city one of the great indictments of our country right now is there seems to be that we've lost the fear of the Lord. But when someone comes to understand their own sinfulness the way God does and cries out to him in desperation, he hears them and forgives them, it's not to them a license to sin more. It's a license to fear God and to walk in his precepts. For years, there's some folks in our church who've been going over to Romania working with Baptist pastors there. But the doctrine that the Baptist pastors of Romania have the hardest time accepting seems to be the the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints or what we Baptists call once saved, always saved because they say to us that if I taught my people that they're always saved, they'd sin like crazy. They'd just go nuts. And, and, And that's what was charged against the Apostle Paul They said, Paul, if we taught salvation by grace alone through faith alone, the people would just go crazy with sin. And Paul says, may it never be. Because a person who understands the depth of their sin and the great love of where Christ has loved us and the sacrifices that the Father made so that we could be forgiven, it doesn't drive them to sin more. It drives them to personal holiness. It drives them to want to be like their savior, you'll have a new desire, a new disposition towards sin and and, and the Lord himself. You you will want to spend time with the Lord. You you remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden? They no longer had a desire for fellowship, did they? They went and hid from the Lord. But when he restores us, when he forgives us, one, one of the great evidences that someone's been born again is they want to spend time with the Lord. And so this is what he says, verse 5, Psalm 130, he says, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. I told you a couple weeks ago that the closest thing to security that any person in the ancient world could have is to find themselves in the happy condition of being able to buy a house inside a walled city. If you could live inside a walled city, you had a much greater chance of survival, they thought. And so many of the people bought houses inside these walled cities. And then they paid guards to stay in watchtowers throughout the night to watch for enemies who would be approaching from any side. And if you've ever been a watchman through the night, or, or you've ever even worked the, the late shift, you know how hard that can be, and how long the night can be. I'll say it this way, if you've ever been sick in the hospital, unable to sleep, and when it gets dark, it seems like the sun will never come up again, doesn't it? And he says this, I wait on the Lord, not so I can give the Lord my goody list, so that I can spend time with Him. I wait on the Lord more than the watchman on the wall. He has a greater desire to worship and praise the Lord now that he's been saved than that watchman waiting for the sun to come up. And by the way, that watchman can't wait for the sun to come up. You've experienced that if you've been born again. The Bible that once was not understandable to you or even attractive to you you can't get enough of it. You you couldn't understand when people would bow in prayer, what in the world they're doing, and now you you run to the Lord with all your problems day and night. That church full of people that you thought were kind of strange, you find are your best friends. <laughs> and you can't wait for Sunday to gather with them and worship his name. That's what he's talking about here. I wait for the Lord my my fundamental disposition towards God and towards my sin has changed. I no longer love my sin. I hate my sin. I no longer blaspheme God. I fear the Lord. I no longer run from His presence. I run to Him in every circumstance of life. But this psalmist is not satisfied just to know that things are right between himself and his God. He wants his nation to experience the same he says in verse 7, with him uh, there is abundant redemption, that is there's enough for everybody. And he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. Now he was very aware that there were plenty of sins in Israel. Reminded of Isaiah when he saw the Lord in his holiness. He said that I am a man of unclean lips, I'm sinful, and I live among... a People of unclean lips. This whole nation is sinful. He's not diminishing their sinfulness. He is expressing the greatness of the salvation of God and his redemption, which is abundant to save. The scripture says our God is mighty to save. The old time theologians used to call Psalm 130 de profundus because that's the Latin for the first phrase, out of the depths. And I think it was Charles Spurgeon again who said, those who pray de profundis rejoice in excelsis. The greater the depths of your despair when you come to Christ, the greater you're able to glorify him and give him thanks. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. He that has been forgiven much gives much praise. So, friends, the writer of Psalms is saying, come to him. There's an invitation. He knows your sinfulness. He knows every vile thought, every vulgar word, every despicable act you've ever done, and yet he offers you forgiveness. The Apostle Paul said it this way, Romans chapter 10, verse 9 in the New Testament, we can. Confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You say, ah, that's not for me. Yes, it is. Remember, there's no amendments, addendums, or asterisks by the phrase that God, with God there is forgiveness, with Him there is mercy. This invitation is for you. No matter what you've done or where you've been. If you're in despair of soul this morning, Thank the Lord. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual depravity and spiritual poverty, that you have nothing of value spiritually that God needs. He has everything that you need. You come to Him on His terms with empty hands, outturned pockets, contrite of soul. Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. That's how this psalmist came to God. He confessed, he agreed with God's assessment of himself and of his sin. He turned from those sins in repentance. He received the gift of grace, not because of a promise to reform or do better, but because God is merciful and because he determined to love him. He loved him even when he was dead and rebellious in his sins. He'll do the same for you. Every person in this room that's born again is saved because of the grace of Jesus Christ and no other reason. That grace is sufficient to save you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And we are grateful for the sufficiency of substitutionary atonement. Jesus has done everything that is necessary for a person to be forgiven. There's nothing left to do. There's no act of penance, no act of contrition, there's no purgatory to go through. None of that is biblical. All that is left for them is to bow their knee to His Lordship, to confess, agree with Him of our sinful condition, repent of that sin and receive His gift of grace. And Lord, I thank you for hundreds in this room who've done that, they've been saved, they've been born again, they're walking with the Lord. Father, I suspect there may be some among us who don't yet know Him in the free pardon of sin. Maybe they are delaying till they're older or live their life. Maybe they are saying that they don't sense their need of a savior. But Lord, I pray you would take this message today and by your spirit, quicken it to their spirit. Father, I pray that you would show them their desperate condition. Father, help them to know that they're not promised tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Lord, I pray you would draw them, pursue them, Father, until they are saved. Father, we pray you do this not for our sake, but for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast.